I'm your host, Jen Carter, facilitator of deep conversation and lover of all things blue. Welcome to our first episode. So we might be shooting ourselves in the foot here, but today we're going to talk about solitary confinement. So I was inspired to do this because I saw someone on Instagram and I wish I had saved it and knew who it was, but he was talking about how everyone's talking about being quarantined, staying at home, doing shelter in place, social distancing, all of this stuff. And he was trying to be inspirational and say, you know what, you can do this. But he was talking about it because he had been in solitary confinement for 18 years. And his point was basically that he had existed in what is the equivalent of your closet or your bathroom for 18 years. And he was saying, you know, you've got the TV and you've got your phone and you maybe have at least part of your family to be there with you and you've got books and things that you can do and so you know you've got this like you can do this and he was saying you know if I can be there in solitary confinement for 18 years you can do this for two weeks or a month or however long it takes us to get through this crisis and I thought wow yes 100% yes um I know a bit about solitary confinement quite a bit more than I would like to know and when he said that, I just thought, oh, yes, people need to really understand. And I hope that it's inspirational um, to, to show people that we really aren't going through something that is as challenging as we might think it is. Although I'm not going to minimize things. You know, if you're having challenges, it's understandable and it's okay. And, um, you know, if you know me, reach out to me and I'm happy to help you. I know we're all struggling with all of this, but I thought that now would be a great time to talk about solitary confinement, to explain what it really is, to, just like he was saying, give some perspective on what we're all going through, but also as we go through this time ourselves and we're getting to experience isolation and being alone and these kinds of things, I'm hoping that will get, it will give us as a society some empathy towards what's happening in our prisons in this country every single day to countless, countless, countless numbers of people and give some perspective on uh, who's actually in solitary confinement because it's not who you think and um, just some perspective on how it all works because it's super scary and really, really awful. So I first thought about solitary confinement in 2005 and I'm going to explain why I thought about it in 2005 probably not what you think. And then I was forced to think about it again in 2013 and to not experience it myself, but experience it remotely. And we'll get into that story in depth as we go into this episode. But in 2011, the UN declared that any solitary confinement over 14 days is torture. If you're not aware, the United States has the largest prison population of any country in the entire world. As a nation, we make up 4.4% of the world's population, but we have around, or maybe a little over, 22% of the world's prison population. That's absolutely nuts. Solitary confinement is used in our prisons and jails and many other facilities in this country on a scale that you would not believe. 
and for reasons that you don't think are the reasons. I know years ago I would have thought that people in solitary confinement must be there because they're scary, dangerous people. And that's just not the case. Solitary confinement is used for administrative reasons, to hold people in certain places for certain times. It's used, quote, for people's protection, and we'll get into that. Um, we're going to get into all these details later. Right now we're seeing, at least here in Virginia, we have some anecdotal cases that it's been used to isolate people that they think have coronavirus. So it really isn't what you think. I hope you'll have a listen. Uh, I've got some very dear friends of mine and uh, the love of my life on this podcast talking about solitary confinement. But first, I'll just talk about my own experience briefly. So I mentioned in 2005 was the first time that I considered what it would be like to be in solitary confinement. And I considered it for kind of a weird reason. So I am a biologist. I was a scientist for the Smithsonian for many years. And I lived in Hawaii for 12 years. And when I first got there, I was working my job. I studied coral and did a lot of work with fish. That's what I went to school to study. But I was just kind of itching to work with some other animals. And so I ended up volunteering at the Honolulu Zoo. And I was given the choice of working with elephants or chimpanzees. And I ended up, uh, much to like kind of my own surprise, I ended up deciding to work with chimpanzees. I had never had any interest really in primates in my life. I'm more of a, um, you know, more into kind of more cuddly things or sea creatures. <laughs> and so I decided to work with the chimpanzees and it was this really eye-opening kind of crazy experience that I'm not gonna get into right now. But part of it was really getting to know each of them as individual beings. And there was one particular chimp who was in this troop of chimpanzees. Her name was Boo. To my knowledge, she's still there. You can probably go and see her. She's not hard to pick out for reasons that I will explain. But Boo was part of this troop, and the story that I was told was that when she was a baby, she was in Africa, and her mother was killed for bushmeat. And if you don't know, bushmeat is where um, people in Africa kill animals like chimpanzees and then sell them for meat because there is a lack of of food in certain places and they they need to do that and so her mother was killed for bushmeat and whoever killed her neglected to see that this little baby chimpanzee was hanging on to her mother and so her mother's body was put into a pile of of bushmeat in a cart and some missionary walking by saw the little baby still clinging on to their mother and uh, grabbed asked to buy her and brought her back to the United States. Now, if you don't know, chimpanzees get big, and adult chimpanzees, at least adult male chimpanzees, are seven times stronger than an adult male human being. So once they get big, they can really mess you up, and they can be really scary, and they can be a lot to deal with. They are not something that people should have as pets. So these people, intending well, intending to save her, brought her back to the United States, And then she got big, and she got scary, and they didn't know what to do with her. And their answer, apparently, as I was told, was to lock her by herself 
in a barn. And I believe that she was there for three or four years, quite some time. And then I don't know if it was a neighbor or somebody else, but someone heard her, realized she was there, uh, didn't know what it was, but called a game warden or some other kind of authority to go in, and they ended up um, getting her out and donating her to a zoo, and then she ended up making her way to the Honolulu Zoo. And it was very interesting watching her because she had not learned to socially interact properly. She had been alone, and she had really been psychologically broken, and you could see that. The other chimpanzees had their whole social organization, which is the thing with chimps, with, with most primates. They're very well, very closely, as you know, related to us. And so they have a social system, and they interact. They don't have English words, but you can see them. Like, they know what's going on. They have their own identities. They have a social structure. And she just could not handle it. So every day at 2 o'clock, one of the things, or not every day, but every day I was there at 2 o'clock, one of the things that I would help with was a keeper talk. And part of that keeper talk was what we called an enrichment feeding. So normally to get their nutrition when they're in their quarters in the evening and when they wake up in the morning, they get their food that they need to survive and for their nutrition. And they're separated out so that they can eat it in peace and that the other chimpanzees don't take it from them. But it's important for their social structure to interact as they eat. And so every day at 2 o'clock, we would do a, a social feeding where we would feed the troop all together in the exhibit so that they could interact with each other while they're doing that. And it kind of sets up this hierarchy of like who's in charge and all these things. And it was so striking to watch Boo during this time because as soon as it started, she would go to the very back of the enclosure and sit by herself because she could not handle the social interaction that had to occur in order to participate in this activity. And I just remember just watching her and being so struck by that and thinking, you know, she was broken. Like she couldn't, she couldn't do what was normally expected that you would think she would be able to do. And it was really, really crazy to see. And so it stuck out in my mind at that point, you know, like if an animal that's so closely related to us is affected that way by being in solitary confinement, what must it do to a human being? And so then fast forward to 2013, 2013 going on 2014, ended up being one of the most crazy years of my life, a year that changed my life completely. Um, but it was a year in which one of my best friends in the whole world was arrested. And uh, the story is a crazy one that we may end up telling later on this podcast, or some of you may have heard before, if you know me. But part of the story was that he was held in solitary confinement uh, for, I think, a total of 15 months, but uh, for almost a year before he ended up uh, deciding to take a really bad plea deal uh, regarding what was going on. And like I said, people are held in solitary confinement for reasons that you don't even think of. And so my best friend at the time, he's now my partner, I should say, um, but my best friend at the time, he, you know, he wasn't a threat to anyone. He's one of the kindest, most wonderful people I have ever known. 
Uh, he was being told that he was in solitary confinement, quote, for his own protection, but we know that he was in solitary confinement as a tactic to get him to break so that he would take a plea deal. And it was really, really incredibly hard to witness. So when he was in solitary confinement, he would get one hour on the phone a day if he was lucky. And often he would call me. He would also call his mom, his sister, his dad, other people. But often he would call me. If I missed that phone call, I would just cry and cry. It was really horrible. But when I did get to talk to him, I watched one of the most extroverted people I know just become completely broken. I watched one of the most intelligent people I know not be able to think about what decisions he should make and what choices he should make regarding himself and the situation and what was going on. I watched him break. And it was so hard to watch. What he was going through was so much worse than my experience watching him. I know that. But on the outside looking in, it was so challenging to see. And it affected me in that Every day I would think, oh my goodness, one of my favorite people in the whole entire world is literally sitting in a box by himself with nothing. He could have a few books, and so we would send him the thickest books that we could find because they often wouldn't let him get new books quickly enough. And so once he had read them, then that was just it. And that was pretty much the only thing he could have um, there with him. So he was literally sitting in a box by himself. And he's going to talk at the end of this podcast more about uh, what happened with him. But it was so hard to, to be out in the world and then have these moments every day where I would just think, oh my gosh, like he's just there alone. Like how would that feel? How would that feel? I also had a lot of trouble during that year. If anybody was being like ignorant or rude or mean, uh, I am not a confrontational person. And, and so I would just like, exit myself from a situation because all I could think was how do you get to be here being a jerk while one of my best friends is sitting being tortured in a box by himself and so that's my experience in understanding solitary confinement I think it is 100% torture even for just a few days the UN as I said has declared solitary confinement anything over 14 days is torture but I think anything at all is just cruel and unusual, and humans are not meant to live that way. We are meant to interact with each other, and I think everyone right now can see that. You know, we're, we're isolating ourselves and spending time alone, and we can see, you know, we, we crave that interaction. We crave being with each other. So we're going to hear from two of my good friends, David Smith and Kimberly Snodgrass. David shared with me some information a while back, and I think it's really, really telling and so super scary. And I just wanted to, to add this before we get into their interview. So one study from North Carolina followed 229 plus individuals over the course of, I think, 10 or 15 years and looked at it, time in solitary, so just being in solitary, and related it to uh, your chance of death, your chance of mortality after being released from prison. So not just being released from solitary, but after your time in prison, being released. And 
they found that the exposure to solitary confinement, not just the length of time, it didn't matter how much time you were in solitary, contributed to a higher chance of you dying within the first year of being released from prison. It increased chance of homicide, chance of suicide, and chance of death by opioid uh, overdose. And just crazy to think about. Just being in solitary for any amount of time increases the chance that when someone gets out of prison that they're going to die within the first year of being out. What does that tell us about what that's doing to people? So I'm really excited for this interview. We did it a few days ago. I will be up front. I've already done the interviews. Um, but please join me and, uh, and listen in to Kimberly Snodgrass and David Smith. They both have very interesting perspectives on solitary confinement and a lot to share with us. So I would like to say welcome to Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass and David Smith. Thank you both so much for agreeing to talk with me today. I thought real quick, if you wouldn't mind, both of you can just introduce yourselves and we can start with Kimberly if you would like to tell us uh, who you are and what you do and a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, my name is Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass, and um, first and foremost, I'm the mother of a offender named Kevin, a wrongfully incarcerated offender uh, named Kevin Dwayne Snodgrass Jr. And also, I am the chair of Interfaith Action for Human Rights, and we service the metropolitan area fighting against uh, solitary confinement and bigotry. Wonderful. And uh, David? Yeah, my name is David Smith. I was a pastor for about six years before I got arrested, and then I spent 16 and a half months in solitary confinement in the Norfolk City Jail, um, out of a total of about a two and a half year um, sentence. And since getting out, I am now living in Richmond, where I'm working in the insurance industry, and I am on the board of Interfaith Act for Human Rights with Kimberly, as well as on the board of OAR, which is the major reentry services provider in um, Central Virginia. And I am the coordinator for the Virginia Coalition on Solitary Confinement. And we're a group of um, individuals and advocacy organizations across the state of Virginia that are working to end solitary confinement in the jails and prisons in Virginia. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Just take a second and you can both chime in whoever wants to say, for people who don't really understand what we mean by solitary confinement, I feel like it's a pretty, uh, you know, it, it says what it means, but what does that actually mean as far as the day-to-day -day life of a person who's in solitary confinement? What's the actual um, parameters of solitary confinement? Well, I mean, for solitary confinement, what you're looking at here is basically being confined to a cell about the size of a parking space or anywhere from about 22 to 24 hours a day. So in the jail system where I was, I got out once every two weeks for an hour of rec time, and then I had two 10-minute showers a week. And because my family was able to visit me every week, I had a 15-minute video phone call outside of my cell. That's what it was like in city jail. Um, now, Kimberly's son, he spent time in solitary in the state prison system. So I'm sure she could probably give a little bit more of a, a first-hand or a second-hand view of how that works in the state system. Kimberly? Sure. Solitary confinement is, I call it a tomb. When you have a loved one 
that's in solitary confinement for a consecutive period of time, um, the state of Virginia uh, has a tendency to do long, prolonged solitary confinement stints for the offenders. So the best way to explain it to me, um, to the listeners is that solitary confinement is the darkest um, place you can be. We are currently on isolation ourselves in the free world and you will see some press say, now we know what it's like to be in prison. Now we know what it's like to be in solitary confinement. There is no such thing. We, we have just had some privileges taken yes. away. Yes. Um, solitary confinement when you have no choice because no court assigns you to solitary confinement. It's, it's just the United States worst kept secret mm -hmm. and no, it's no longer a secret right. because advocates mm -hmm. such as ourselves is speaking out and returning citizens such as David is sharing the experience. Yeah. So uh, there's a movement to end solitary confinement, especially in Virginia. Yeah, and that's exactly why I wanted to do this topic for my first episode right now, was because I heard people saying things like that. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, you just do not understand. Like, right, right. stay in your house with your computer and your TV and your family and your food and, and whatever you, you know, you're just, you're just in your house. It is not the same. And I really wanted people to um, understand. But at the same time, also, where I'm feeling like, no, you don't get it. It's not the same. I hope that by seeing uh, our, our small privileges being taken away, it might also give some people some sympathy in this moment to say, like, oh, I'm struggling with just being at home. Mm -hmm. Can I imagine being in a cell for this amount of time or longer? Exactly, Jen. I really believe, I really believe when we are able to move around as advocates and get back out there, the public will embrace or understand more. This is a terrible time, but this is an educational time uh, for society. And um, being a woman of faith, you know, God has a way of helping us to see his word, his mission. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a saying, you worship athletes. Well, I can take that away, being him. Right. You worship uh, celebrities. Well, I can shut that down. And right now, all of us shut down. If, if you understand the word, you can understand kind of what's going on because everything that's going on is yeah. in the word. Yeah. So, um, uh, we try not to live in fear from it, uh, but, um, you know, I just pray. I, 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 I can say uh, prayer and meditation is huge mm -hmm. because um, we all know that the most vulnerable right now are those that's incarcerated. Yes, definitely. And the numbers in Virginia is like doubling. I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, I would even say has tripled. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and um, Kevin called the other day, three weeks before this all came about, I went to visit Kevin at, at the prison. Mm -hmm. And he had a little cough and a cold. Mm -hmm. So when he called me saying, I, I got mucus, um, so forth, do I panic 
uh, no, I don't panic, but I have to pick up the phone and make a call on his behalf. And I have to separate my role at IAHR because just the day before we was on a call with the uh, secretary's office Mm -hmm. talking about what they was doing and they was answering our questions. And it, you know, it's two separate issues. And I was like, well, I must make that call because I'm a mother first and I'm an advocate second. And, um, you know, they are not, um, you know, they say zero uh, coronavirus cases in the Department of Correction. Well, you're going to get zero. If you're not testing anybody, you're going to get zero all day long. Um, uh, To me, that's another way how they come up with the the lowest recidivism rate in Virginia. Well, if you're not letting nobody out, you won't have a low rate. Um, I'm done. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. so, so let's back up a little bit. So, so David, you were in solitary confinement for 16 months. Is that right? 16 and a half, yes. 16 and a half. So um, we know, and uh, I will probably say this uh, prior to this in the podcast, uh, as I put together the beginning of this podcast, we're kind of doing things a little out of order. But uh, we know the UN declared anything over 14 days or 15 days, I think back in 2011, is considered cruel and unusual or torture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so you were in there way longer <laughs> than, than yeah. that amount of time. Can you share uh, whatever you're comfortable with? And I know you talk about this a lot, so I know you, you are usually comfortable saying so, but whatever you're comfortable with, can you just kind of describe how it was to be in there and then uh, share a little bit about how it affected you as a person? Well, a lot of the things I didn't realize until after I got out. Right. Because as you are affected by the mental stress, the the least mental degradation, you don't realize it yourself. You look back and say, wow, I can't believe I got to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the point of thinking, you know what? I could easily die here and I'm fine with that because there's nothing else I can do. Mm-hmm. I got to the point of saying to myself, you know what, I'm in the middle of solitary right now. I've been in solitary for over a year at this point in my mind, or it's been over a year. And I said, you know what, they can't do anything worse to me than where I am right now. They could do corporal punishment on me. They could whip me, they could beat me, they could do something like that. And in my mind, that was less painful than what I had already been through. Um, there was a day when there was this burning smell that started coming through the vent system on my block. We had about seven cells side by side, so we couldn't see each other, but we could hear each other. And we started smelling the smell coming through. And we're all pressing our buttons to get the, the, um, the deputy's attention because we thought something was burning. It smelled like something was burning. And I ended up going back on my bunk, which is on the back side of my cell, away, the furthest point away from the door, and just sat down. I was like, you know what? They don't come for us if this place burns down. I mean, that's it. Nothing else to do. I might as well just lie here. And there, I did not have that will to fight anymore. Um, yeah, the, the delusions of just not understanding any, losing that touch with reality. I think it's the best way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I started having conversations with the TV. So in my block, we did have TVs, which is probably the thing that kept all of us from just completely 
um, losing touch with reality. Because there were guys there that were in there when I arrived and were in there when I left. And some of these people hadn't even been convicted of a crime yet. They were in there because of jury trials and such like that. So I'm watching a lot of Big Bang Theory. It came on, I could see six episodes a, a night on weeknights usually. So I learned all the episodes, I learned all the lines, and I started having conversations with the characters. It seemed perfectly normal to me. And I get out and I'm reading um, articles about what happens when you become disassociated, when you have these mental struggles, mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things is talking to a TV, which is what I did on the regular and thought nothing was wrong with it. Yeah. Once I got out, I realized several things. One, I'd become much more, I don't want to say introverted, but I needed that alone time. I can be by myself for hours on end now and not have a problem with it. I've taken up trail running. I I do long distance ultra marathons now. And I think part of that is a reaction to not being able to move, being confined in the space of a parking spot. I ran a 50K in January. And one of the thoughts that went through my mind is this is the exact opposite right. of where I was six years ago, where I was five years ago. And another thing, I don't do loud noises well anymore. When the guards would come in, when the deputies would come in and toss our cells, which would happen about once every month, once every other month, first thing they would do is they're all dressed in their riot gear. They would take their, um, their sticks, their batons, and pound on everybody's door as they're running through. And so you had this loud cacophony of noise before your world got turned upside down. So loud noises now. They give me jumps. They give me starts. And so let me just ask you a question. I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, no. they would come through and you said, toss your cell, which means they go through all your stuff, right? They right. go through all. But you have been by yourself since the last time they did that, right? Like there's no way for you to interact with anyone. Well, you can get in trouble for certain. I'm like, you could have too many magazines, too oh. many papers, things like that. Um, but they were minor things like that. There was nothing that would have really caused the need for people in riot gear yeah. with face masks on to come through yourselves. Right. I would have magazines taken away. I'd have newspaper sales saving taken away. Um, a lot of us would write stuff on paper that would be taken away if we didn't have it set up in a way that seemed like it was organized. So, yeah, you there was a lot of control and the idea was to control the individual to basically take all choices away from them to confine them to that space the state facility sometimes you you are um you can have too many stamps mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah you know uh a stamp too many stamps could be a contraband um um, and then in some cases, you, you can, um, uh, not standing for count, yeah. you know, you're in the size of a parking space, not standing for count, uh, you know, just, just things like that, um, yeah. that in my opinion, uh, makes it more difficult. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's so many of those little things that I think the general public just has no idea. Well, one of the biggest ones, Jen, if I can hop in here, yeah. um, when you're in solitary, the lights never go off. They never go off. And I'm in my room right now, 
and I have the, the blinds drawn, but this is natural light coming in here. Yeah. This is just slightly, it would just get slightly darker than this yeah. at nighttime in my cell when I was in solitary. So you could still, you'd still have shadows. It was that bright at night. Yeah. Um, what we would do is we would take pieces of cardboard. When you would get a writing pad, there's a piece of cardboard on it. I would get tape on my um, meal trays and I would use that tape to then tape the cardboard up against the light. But I had to make sure I only did that during times when certain um, deputies were there because some deputies would come in and take out that cardboard and they throw it away. Others understood what we were going through and they're like, you know what? You're sleeping. Let them sleep. Yeah. Let them have a little bit of darkness. Whereas others were just like, no, you can't do that. Take it down or we're taking away fill in the blank, blank privilege. We're taking away your rec time. We're taking away your canteen, something like that. Even on a biological level, that's so just so incredibly torturous to mess with your circadian rhythms like that. It, like what it's done to you, not just on a psychological level, but on a biological and physiological level is, is just crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Kimberly, I, uh, I think you know, but my, my partner now, he was in solitary when he first was locked up. And at the time we weren't partners yet. He was uh, my best friend. And I remember how it felt just for me um, when he was in there. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your son, how, how long he was in there and then how it felt like for you as a mother, knowing that that was what he went through? Uh, Kevin, Kevin was in solitary confinement for four consecutive years. Um, the way I felt was I have two sons, Kevin and Kyle. The left side of my body um, ate the whole time that Kevin was in the system um, because I was not aware of what solitary was and um, to know how he was living. And as I went out to advocate in the street, I would meet individuals who had spent time in solitary confinement, and they started telling me about the psychological damage that it could do. Um, and then, um, now here's something that maybe David can identify with. Talking to Kevin on the phone, it would seem like he's okay and he's across the street. I really didn't witness the damage to my son until I was able to touch him after the four years that he had served in solitary confinement. When I first touched him, hugged him, he had no smell, no body scent. Of course, he had lost weight and he had a shiver because my touch was the first probably human touch, loving touch that he had experienced. Mm -hmm. But as I go to visit him now in the contact visit, I notice he's always looking over his shoulder. He has less patience. And you could see the damage, the PTSD. One time I spoke to David and I said, my son is complaining about his eyes because I remember when David spoke to me about his story, about his eyes. And uh, so I get what David is saying because Kevin, he was freaking out. He was like, mom, I'm going blind. So I guess it's a excruciating pain. Uh, it's adjustment. And prior to going into solitary confinement, Kevin did not need glasses. Now he needs glasses um, and he's adjusting and uh, he has suffers from a dry eye now. Um, 
So the lighting damage is, is another monster or another problem or another issue that needs to be discussed because uh, some guys can actually possibly lose some sight from this. Right, wow. Yeah. So I totally identify with what David is saying. And then the other thing I can say about my son is um, there's, a, there's a level of anger because he was in there unnecessarily. And he was in a cycle that he could not come out of. You know, they say the step down program and the phase program and all these programs, but um, Kevin has some level of college. So when he finally was able to send me a booklet and the booklet was like maybe eighth grade level, if that, um, very thin and they, they called it journals. Mm -hmm. It was a journal. Um, and so um, there's a level of anger that that was, a, that was able to happen to him because he wasn't able to gain good time, good credit time, four years. Mm -hmm. They say you in solitary confinement. Well, you can't get good credit time in solitary confinement but what are you doing wrong in solitary confinement? Right. Um, so that's four years of good credit time he lost. And, um, you know, uh, they say, what programs are you, you doing to rehabilitate yourself? Well, what programs do you have? So it's, it's those kind of things. I'm not trying to change the Virginia Department of Correction and how they do things, because if some of their procedures was executed and implemented the way they're written, it would be right. better. Yeah. But there's so much uh, deviation yeah. from the procedures. Um, and then accountability. You know, we have a system, um, and I'm sure they're not the only one here in Virginia. They're pol policing themselves. Right. Um, there needs to be an oversight mm -hmm. to the Virginia Department of Corrections. Yeah, yeah. And a lot over a lot of a lot of things, not right. just yeah, for sure. David, so you mentioned uh, that some of the guys that were in solitary, where you were, they hadn't gone to trial yet, or they were there because of jury trials. Can can you both just kind of tell folks? Because I think there's this misconception that if somebody's in solitary, they're super scary, they're super dangerous, they're they're going to like, you know, murder everyone they see or something crazy like that. And that is just not the case. And there's lots of, of reasons, maybe not good ones, but lots of reasons why uh, people are, are kept in solitary confinement. So, Go ahead, David. Exactly. You, so in the, um, in the city jail, theoretically, you're only going to be in a city jail for no more than 12 months. The whole idea is you stay in the city jail for 12 months or less if you get a 12 month less sentence, it's jail time, or you're in the city jail because you are waiting for your trial date because you couldn't make bond because they deem you a flight risk. So the guy beside me, um, he was deemed a flight risk because maybe 10 years, seven years before he got arrested this time, he ran away from some cops when they were trying to arrest him. He didn't get very far, he got clotheslined by one of them. I mean, he got maybe 10 feet and that was it. But now he was marked as a flight risk, as somebody who might break out of the jail. Now, if you've never been to an urban jail, you can't just break out of an urban jail. So we were on the seventh floor of a downtown Skyrise. 
every floor, there were multiple locked doors you had to get through to get to the stairs, which then had multiple locked doors to get out of the building. So you weren't just going to, oh, let me slide out, something like that. But yet, he was still a flight risk, so he was in there. Um, there were two other guys who were in there because they were going to be witnesses for another trial. And they didn't want them in general population because, well, then they might share information with each other or talk to other people. And their, um, their testimony would be, would be compromised. So they, they, they were arrested for something else and then were going to be used as a witness for something else. In exactly, yes. Getting out? I, I don't know if there was a plea deal there, but all I know is that they were going to be test, or testifying in another trial. The trial hadn't happened yet. Now, mind you, I was there for 16 and a half months. They were there when I got there. They were there when I left. And this isn't just hearsay because the lawyers would come in and you would hear what they'd be talking about. You'd right. hear that the trial was postponed because of this, that, or the other. Yeah. Um, there are people like me that were in there because, well, you know what? You're a suburban white guy, big city. You're, because I was a pastor, my case was all over the news. So we want to protect you. My lawyer was actually friends with the sheriff. And he thought it was a good idea for me to be in solitary. So I thought it was a good idea because that's what my lawyer said. And um, so I was in there, quote unquote, for my own good. Right. Now, mind you, when I got to the state system, I was in general population for that whole 14 months or so I spent in the state. Nobody cared. Yeah. We're just a bunch of random people once you get to the state system. Yeah. And when it would have been the same thing probably in the city system as well. So, David, let me ask you a question, if yeah. I may. Um, because all the time they, they, they say we put offenders in solitary confinement sometimes for their own protection. So is it your opinion, even at the regional jail level, when they use that, um, that statement to put someone in solitary confinement, would you have rather been just in general population? If I knew then what I know now, yes, I would have rather been in general population. At the time, I thought I was getting off easy. I thought I've got it made, everything is going well. But um, once again, I was talking about those mental effects earlier. You don't realize what's happening to you until after you get out of that pot. Yeah. So I did not, if I knew the mental struggles I would have once I got out of solitary, the difficulties I would have in adjusting. And mind you, I'm coming from a fortunate position. Before I was sentenced, between when I was arrested and when I was sentenced, I was able to go to rehab. I did a 40-day residential rehab. I was able to get myself on a solid emotional and psychological foundation. And most folks don't have that opportunity. Plus, I had family always visiting me. I had kids taking my phone calls. That's stuff that most people don't have. Yeah. And even with all of that support, even with all that care that I was able to have given to me, my time in solitary still messed me up. It messed with me emotionally. It messed with me physically. My blood pressure got so low that I think my top number, your top number is just like, what, 110, 120, something like that. My top number on a good day would be in the high 80s. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and they was like, oh, let me check with the doctor. Oh, yeah, he says you're fine. Yeah. I had a, a tooth. I had a crown that came off. Like a day before I was sentenced, my crown came off. Eventually, it came all the way off. And I couldn't get dental assistance for about six months. So by the time I finally got out of prison, that tooth was so far gone that it had to be surgically taken out. 
those are things that happen when you're in solitary. You don't get that care. You've got that separation. Um, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's a horrible place. It's not for the worst of the worst, like what some people will try to tell you. It's exactly. for your average everyday person. Right, right. I mean, um, you know, um, Director Harold Clark, he would do a panel, and I'm going to say this specifically, he would do a panel, and he'll say, those in solitary confinement or those assigned to uh, prisons such as the Wallace Ridge and the Red Onions are the worst of the worst. And that's not true. There are so many who have been sent to those maximum security facilities who shouldn't be there, who shouldn't have never been there. And um, that's something that leaves a bitter taste in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a short term, in their minds, it's a short term fix, and they're not looking at the long term consequences. You have somebody you don't know what to do with. And instead of actually coming up with a healthy plan, saying this is how we can handle the situation in a way that's healthy for our staff, as well as for the incarcerated individual, like, just put them in solitary. Then we don't have to deal with it anymore. And we'll get him in the reentry program a few years before he goes out, and he's good to go. But that's not I agree the with that, but I also think um, there was a period of time when um, they was filling bids, especially at Red Onion. They yeah. was filling bids because Wallace Ridge had a population. Red Onion, remember, was reopening. And so a lot of offenders who was at Powhatan went up the mountain. Oh, wow. Because you remember there was some facilities that was closing down. So um, they was filling bids at Red Onion. Yeah, they, they needed to justify that facility being open. Yes, and, they was filling bids. Yeah, and you can't, it's not easy to downgrade the security level of an existing facility. I mean, you've got a single cell, you've got a single cell. You've got lockdown situations, you've got lockdown situations. You don't have the rec space. I was at, um, I did my, most of my state time at Lunenburg. I did about 13 months at Lunenburg. That's basically um, community college with barbed wire. That's, I mean, that's what it is. There's, guards didn't have visible guns. There were no dogs walking around, stuff like that. I mean, the only dogs we had were the, the adopted dogs, which were being cared for by some of the, the other guys that I was locked up with. But you go to those higher levels, like what Kimberly's talking about, you've got shotguns, you've got um, attack dogs around there. It's a different mental and physical situation, emotional situation, than what you have under normal um, circumstances in prison. And right. that, that takes a toll on you. That's, I hear stories of guys who spent years in these high security facilities in solitary, and I know what I went through, and hearing their story, it, it breaks my heart because I know it's so much more extreme than what I experienced. Right. And, we'll, and what we have to also remember too is it's not only the offenders. I uh, I met some really nice um, security guards there, you know, uh, officers there, um, and then I met some that it was just a job and uh, they were stressed being in that environment and so forth. I mean, they are people too. Um, um, you know, on a given day, you could drive six hours up there and um, 
you come and maybe one of the kids is not on the paper. <laughs> you know, you know they was on the paper, but they can't find them on the form. Mm -hmm. So you you come back. I remember one time we drove up there. Uh, Kevin has three sons and his grandmother is 94 years old. So you know what it takes to take a 94-year-old individual up to that mountain? Yeah. And they turned us away because they said one of the kids was not on the form. Oh, my gosh. And David met my grandchildren. Um, there's no way I would register two and leave one off. Right. You know what I mean? And it was, it was, the kids were, was okay. Oh, yeah, we go home. <laughs> okay. But when I looked at my mother's eyes, mm. because she, she had waited till she felt better to take that trip. Mm -hmm. You just never know when that's the last trip. And KK yeah. is her, Kevin is her first, um, born child from her daughter, uh, which is a different from the man. They say when a when a daughter has your grandchild, that's your grandchild. <laughs> so it's it, it's just a saying that yeah. we have. And um that was the most heartbreaking day ever. Yeah. Now I'll never forget it was a security guard who was there. She came out, she said, ma'am, it's nothing we can do. Because if something happened to that child in there and he's not on that form, we'll have a problem. And I told her I understood. I said, I appreciate more that you came out and saw the pain in my mother's eyes. Right. And sometimes you have to just do the job. Yeah. You know, so um, there's some, some people up in the mountains, there's a, a nun up there, Sister Beth Davies, mm -hmm. uh, that's up there. And she is fighting uh, in the mountains. And she was the one who educated me to look at the guards and look at the pain that they're in. Mm -hmm. And some of them quit because in dealing with um, some of the things that go down at Wallace Ridge and um, Red Onion State Prison, it's too much for them. They say they'd rather go back to the coal mine. Yeah. yeah. That's something we don't talk about that often is what's actually happening to these um, COs that are working in these high security, solitary confinement situations. Because that takes a toll on you knowing that you are confining somebody to a cell the size of a parking space. Yeah. Um, there aren't any good numbers, unfortunately, about the mental health of the COs that are working in that situation. We do know just from reading obituaries that there are suicides that happen amongst that population. There's a researcher at um, University of California, I want to say Santa Barbara, but it might be Davis, one of those two that I've been in touch with. And she wants to do research in this area, but hasn't been able to find the funding for it. Because I mean, as a researcher, you have to go where your funding yeah. is. And so there are these people out there that these academics who want to find out what's really going on to these individuals that are working in these situations. It's not just the, the individual locked up. Right. It's the individual taking care of, for lack of a better word. And I, I use that very, very lightly. It's, but it's supervising, right. working in that situation, it's taking a toll on them too. There's that, the death rate, the suicides, the mental health. As Kimberly was saying, you basically sometimes you just flame out of the job because it is that hard. You'd yeah. rather go work in a dying industry in a coal mine, which you know is going to kill you, right. as opposed to exactly. working at a prison. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jen, did you see the um, 
the article in the Richmond Times. David, did you get a chance to see it about um, um, the statewide criminal legal system action in response to COVID-19? I did, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I found it in interesting, the ACLU of Virginia executive guidance um, that they issued uh, requesting, um, you know, release of offenders and so forth. And I, I found that very interesting because the state of Virginia has yet to say they're testing these uh, offenders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to be a rough situation. I mean, it hasn't happened yet to our knowledge. Yeah. But once the virus gets in that in those facilities, um, Kimberly and I were on a phone call last week about this. Yeah. Right. And basically their plan is, well, if there's room to isolate people in different pods, we'll do that. But if not, uh, we don't really have a plan right now. So it's, I hope the other isolation processes work, because if not, it's going to be disaster on our hands. Yeah. yeah. Totally preventable disaster. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you guys forever today, but I do want to ask you um, two more things. First, can you guys tell me a little bit about what happened this year in Virginia in the legislation regarding solitary confinement? And then if you know kind of how Virginia and solitary confinement relates to the rest of the nation as far as what's going on with reform and things like that. I think, I think before we could uh, respond to that question, we have to tell you what happened with legislation the year before. Okay. The reason I say that is because um, Virginia has never been accountable for their prison system or jail system in a way that um, the Virginia coalition against solitary confinement has held them. Right. And I think it's very important to know that last year we had a data collection bill passed um, and it was uh, chief patron was Patrick, Patrick Hope, Delegate Hope. And um, that bill uh, dealt with the um, collection of data pertaining to uh, how many people are in solitary confinement when they came out and so forth. And that was the benchmark for what occurred this year. And again, the Virginia, um, Coalition Against Solitary Confinement is a, a group of partners of nonprofit organizations such as CURE, such as SALT, ACLU Virginia, and other organizations. Uh, we, we meet uh, throughout the year to come up with a strategy um, to make it better in the system. So this year, I'm going to let David explain what happened this year. Thank you. So this year, uh, first of all, Kimberly has been involved in this organization in the um, coalition for longer than I have. Um, so she's got a lot of that institutional knowledge that I'm still gaining here. But um, so this year we developed, we drafted this bill, which is really, from what, what I've heard, what I've seen, I think it's one of the best bills ever as far as eliminating solitary confinement. Yep. Now, it was a big ask. I mean, basically it wiped out the use of solitary confinement for more than... Um, 48 hours in pretty much any situation imaginable. It was a bold deal. It was great. Yeah, bold, bold, bold is a good bold. word. Bold. <laughs> bold is an excellent word. And, but of course, unfortunately, our legislators weren't as bold as 
as advocates. So we also had a, another provision in that bill which dealt with the jail and the regional jail system in Virginia. So if you're not familiar with this, in Virginia, you basically have two different incarceration systems. Um, you've got the state prison system run by the Department of Corrections, which is overseen, or was overseen by the Department of Corrections. Then you have the local and regional jail system, which are run by the local cities, counties, or a coalition of cities and counties, depending mm -hmm. on where you are. And those are overseen by the Board of Corrections. So different organization, Department of Corrections and Board of Corrections. Right. So what we ended up doing is we took our part for the Board of Corrections, which would have had them look at how they use solitary confinement. They were gonna adopt the same rules as we had for the state system. But when we realized the state part wasn't going to pass because the Department of Corrections put an, an enormous price tag on eliminating solitary confinement, which funny aside, two years ago, they said there was nobody in solitary confinement. Right. This year they said it was gonna cost what? $40 million to not have solitary confinement? 53, so, $53 million. Oh, $53 million to get rid of something they said two years ago did not exist. Right. The same. Okay, but what we ended up getting past though, and this is with the support of the, um, the Sheriff's Association, which run their local jails, is a study bill that's going to create a um, stakeholder committee to look at the use of solitary confinement in the regional and local jails and figure out those next best steps going forward. So you'll have advocates, you'll have formally affected folks who are in solitary, side by side with those sheriffs, with those prosecutors, all working together to find a healthier solution here for us to move forward. I'm really excited about that because this can lay the groundwork for us to really say what is possible in Virginia and really put it to the test and say, look, this works. What we as advocates have been saying all along that you don't need to use solitary confinement like you're using it. Here, you can see it now in our own state of Virginia that this works. Once we get that in place, once we see how that plays out, then that's going to give us the opportunity to then take that to the state level and say, here's our proof of product. This is what's working. Now let's do this in the state system and show that we don't need to use solitary confinement. There are better solutions that we have as Americans. Cool. And so are you guys, um, guys going to try to push through legislation again next year to eliminate it as well? Uh, we have of course. Not, of course. Yes, we, we don't have an official plan yet for next year, but yes, that's what we do. Right. We we don't have an official uh, plan for next year, but I'm hopeful I'm hopeful that the chair of the Virginia <laughs> Coalition on Solitary Confinement, and that's David, yeah. will uh, take the same bill and submit it. And the reason I say that is because now we have the impact statement. Now we have um, the Sheriff Association that's with us. Um, now we have so many, sometime when you go to the table um, for a bill, you may not get what you want, but then once again, he being God will give you what you supposed to have. And when you really look at it, before we can end solitary confinement, we really need it. Uh, to tap into the regional jails because we, we wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to do what we're gonna be able to do with this bill once it's signed, because it did pass, and it should be signed when, um, what is it, 1284, HB 1284? 
Okay, so it should be signed by July, is it? Oh, yes, they're signed it. Yeah. So once signed, um, I, I, I think it will behoove us to submit the same bold bill to end solitary confinement. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Where do we stand as far as the state uh, with the rest of the country? Are we, are we doing, are we ahead of the game? Or are we behind the game? I imagine I know the answer, but what do you guys, what do you guys think? What do you know? There's so little official data um, as far as who's in solitary and where, the, the numbers can be kind of hard. As far as what bills were presented, our bill is basically probably the most um, comprehensive bill to end solitary confinement wow. in the country. That's, that's what other advocates have, have um, shared. Yeah. But across the country, there are different movements. Um, I believe it's North Dakota has, without legislation, um, they eliminated solitary confinement. Oh, wow. Now, mind you, that's, that's a much different population. You have, I yeah. think there's one state prison in North Dakota, yeah. overseen by the one superintendent with the one director. Right. So it's so a much you have, Maine, you have Maine, Colorado, New Jersey. Uh, there are states out there who have, who has in solitary confinement and can be uh, the model for how can we get there. Um, at the end of the day, this is not about the advocacy organizations. It's about the loved ones and returning yeah. citizens. Um, right. uh, who will be coming out and um, if we could just get past this us them scenario yeah. Yeah. Uh, work together um, this would be a, a, a much better um, outcome oh yeah and it really is about all of us you know like yeah. if we're doing things when people are behind bars that are degrading their mental well-being that are degrading their physical well-being they're getting out and aside from just the you know the hu human part of not wanting to do that to someone it's affecting us as a society and and being being a, a burden but also you know contributing to lessening our safety really and so it is we're all in this together and i agree if we could we could get rid of that narrative of us versus them that would be amazing um what's one thing or a few things that just regular people can do to help uh help to uh, participate in trying to end solitary confinement? What can people do to help us all out in figuring this out? Well, the, I'm sorry, David. I just want to say the Interfaith Action for Human Rights represents people of faith who live in Virginia, the District of Columbia, and Maryland. So IAHR's mission is to end policies and practice that promote torture in our society. And so what people can do to help is um, volunteer, give us a call. Um, we need, Virginia is a large state. We need people throughout the state. Um, and then we want people to know that we're interested in um, offenders who, who need help. We have a, um, a board member, a former board member, um, our senior analyst right now in Virginia, who corresponds with um, Gay Gardner, who uh, corresponds with offenders and, and try to help them if they're in solitary confinement or have unusual uh, circumstances while being behind the wall. Um, David and myself, we're out here in the trenches trying to change, make changes through policy changes. 
you know, with legislation. Um, and we can always need help. Um, we want returning citizens to be a part of our board. We are a working board, <laughs> a very much so working board. And we want to partner with organizations such as your organization. Yeah, we would David, I'm going to give you a moment to say whatever you feel. Yeah, so basically I see several ways that your hearers can get involved right now. One is tell their legislator, tell their state senator, tell their state delegate, delegate this is something important, yeah. that we need to get rid of solitary confinement in Virginia. Right. Um, your local Commonwealth attorneys, um, your local sheriffs, let them know this is important. Your sheriff at that local level, he or she, and they're mainly he's in Virginia, is going to have a lot more sway than anybody else when it comes to the use of solitary confinement yeah. at your local and regional jail. Let them know when they're elected, because they are elected positions, yeah. let them know you don't think solitary confinement, you know solitary confinement should not be used in Virginia. Yeah. Um, as Kimberly was saying, once this, um, these travel restrictions get lifted and we can gather in groups again, reach out to Interfaith Action for Human Rights and we will set up a panel where you are of folks that have formerly um, spent time in solitary, some solitary survivors, advocates, policy people, to come and give a presentation where we can interact and you can find out more about what's really going on and how you can become even more involved. And just really sharing the story. Share this podcast. Let people know that the folks that are in solitary aren't these Hannibal Lecter type people. I never met one single person that was scary in solitary. Yeah. I meet more scary people walking around my neighborhood in Richmond than I did when I was in prison. I'll just be honest about that. Yeah. But yeah, it's just average people that for one reason or another have ended up in a really bad situation yeah. and they still deserve our love and compassion. Yes, yes. I mean, as I, I'm a Christian. I believe that God made every single one of us. I believe that there is worth and dignity in each one of us, mm -hmm. no matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you might have made. And there is nothing, nothing that anyone could ever do that would cause them to deserve to be put in solitary confinement. I agree. For a week, for two weeks, for years. That's, that's unconscionable that we as a society allow that. So share that message. Let people know that this really does exist. Let people know that there is an option, an alternative, and let your delegates and your senators and your sheriffs know that this is important to you and it's an issue that you're willing to vote on. Yeah. Exactly. We right. must mobilize and uh, I just thank the Humanization Project for having us on. Yes. Uh, I believe this is our first together podcast, right, David? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've done some without you. You've done some without me, but this is our first, our first tandem one. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this was really great. Uh, uh, we'll end it right here. I'm gonna say thank you guys so much for for being here, and uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
challenging to talk about. David, for one, always amazes me at his ability to discuss it and to be so incredibly honest. He was in there for so long, and every time I see him, I just give him a giant hug because I cannot imagine going through that. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, in 2013, one of my best friends in the whole world was put into solitary confinement. Since that time, he's been in prison. He and I have gotten closer, and about three years ago to this month, uh, we decided to be together, and it's the greatest relationship. We have such a wonderful time together, as weird as that seems, even though he's in prison and I'm out here. We have an amazing, amazing relationship. But there was that period of time where he was in solitary confinement before we were in our relationship when we were just friends, and I witnessed him go through that. It was around the time, a little after, the same year, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the UN declared any solitary confinement over 14 days is torture, and I can attest to that. I watched him be tortured. In the United States, as I mentioned, we have more people behind bars than any other country in the world, and that more than many other countries combined. Estimates of solitary confinement are really, really difficult to pinpoint, because it's not reported well and often not reported correctly. Some estimates guess that we have between 80,000 and 100,000 people in this country in solitary confinement. My guess is that number is even bigger. So there's people in solitary confinement in prisons and in jails. So if you don't know, prisons are usually state or federally run. Jails are locally run and they're run quite differently. There's also people in solitary confinement in other places like more mental hospitals, juvenile facilities, different things. And so estimating the number of people in solitary confinement is really, really challenging. So you're going to hear from my partner, Taj, here about his experience in solitary confinement. And then he and I are going to talk about a report that came out in Virginia uh, last year talking about the use of solitary confinement in Virginia, and he's going to talk about his issues with the way that that report reported the numbers. We're just kind of going to talk through it and and what it means. So I hope you enjoy this part too. I know this podcast is getting a little long, but like I said, we're getting deep into subjects, and I think these things are important and interesting, and you know, a lot of people don't think about people being held in solitary confinement. And it is torture, and it is happening to so many people every day right here in our country. I hope you enjoy this chat with my partner, and thanks so much for listening. Hello. 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 So, I have here on the phone with me Taj, who is a sociologist, activist, teacher. He's studied criminal justice, drug policy, racial inequality, and all sorts of other things. And he just so happens to be behind bars at the moment. And he is also the love of my life. So here on the podcast, you're going to be hearing from him quite a bit. But today, we are going to be talking about uh, solitary confinement. So how are you doing? I am doing quite well. Very happy to have a chance to speak about this uh, a little bit to the rest of the world because I think it is a largely misunderstood, unconsidered situation that happens way too frequently. 
Right. And that's a big part of the Blue podcast is that we are getting into topics and things that people don't think about much and don't really understand and taking a deep dive into them. So as you know, I interviewed uh, our friends David Smith and Kimberly Snodgrass uh, about solitary confinement. David was in solitary for 16 months and Kimberly's son was in solitary for four years. And happily, you are not in solitary right now, (laughs) which is great, and you have not been for a long time. But tell us, you were in solitary for, for a while as well. Yeah, I ended up spending uh, a total of about 15 months in segregation, solitary, the whole, whatever you want to call it. It goes by many names, but they all amount to the same thing. And I think that's something that, that is a way that it gets not fully understood that we can talk about more later. But yeah. it was the first 15 months of my incarceration, and it was also without a doubt, the worst 15 months of my entire life, and uh, it absolutely changed my life. Uh, I think there's a very good chance I would not be in prison for this um, rather harsh sentence uh, that I've experienced if it was not for them using uh, the whole as a weapon against me uh, in the first place during that time period. Yeah. So... At that time, <laughs> we were we were just friends. We were some of each other's best friends, and uh, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast as well. But um, I remember what it was like when that was going on, and I remember uh, speaking with you during that time, and uh, it was really really tough to witness. And um, and so, if you are okay with it, can you tell us just a little bit about how it felt and and kind of like the details of what, what you know, how long were you in the cell each day and, and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So I think right now with everything going on with COVID-19 and people, so many people being stuck in their houses and relatively, compared to normal life anyway, confined spaces and with a lot, with less social interaction. Right, which is and, exactly why we're uh, doing this, this episode right now. Yeah. yeah. So I think people are starting to get an understanding of how isolation, social isolation, can, can seem so different. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but this is a whole other, segregation in, in behind bars is a whole other level of that right. same thing. So I want you to imagine, imagine going into your bathroom, a full bath, but not a master bath, a full <laughs> bath. But instead of where the bathtub is, imagine a cop. Now, I want you to imagine spending, not you, because we and I have spoken about this, but in general, people to imagine spending even two consecutive days in that bathroom, but without a window either. Okay, so imagine that on top of that, then there's no opportunity for anybody else to be in there with you. And if you're lucky, once a day, you could have a phone call, not FaceTime or anything like that, just a phone call with one person, but you have no hope of seeing them anytime soon either. All you can do is tell them how much you miss them, right? So that's, and that's best case, because most of the time you don't even get that. So that's, imagine that for just two days, no television, nothing to do, just sitting there. Yeah. And, and 
add to that, because it's a, it's a space about that size, and then you add to that that you're not allowed out, because there's nobody else to talk to, and on the periodic times when you do get to take a shower, you are handcuffed and taken and put in an actual cage and locked in that cage to take that shower, and it's done without, in front of guards. Okay, so that's, there, there's the privacy thing goes away entirely, of course, and uh, imagine you don't get to see this guy, and I was just, you know, thinking about that for just two days seems like a lot, but imagine doing that for weeks or months or years, and you don't even get to see the sky, no sun, and then none of the social interaction that people need either. There's not, it's not like there's other people there with you to provide positive feedback. The only people you ever see are the guards, and the guards that work in SIG, not 100%, but generally tend to be the guards who want to work in SIG. It is not pleasant interaction. Mm -hmm. So basically your only social interaction is hatred and judgment or at the best indifference for the course of weeks, months, even years. And what ends up up happening is, at least to me, I think different people experience it differently, Mm -hmm. but I kind of lost my entire identity because our identity is not just ourselves, dependent upon how we are as an isolated unit in the world. Our identity is how we interact with the rest of the world. And right. as, you know, different people, different personalities, but as social creatures, I mean, human beings are inherently social. The thing that allowed us to get these big rational brains was the ability to first develop social and emotional bonds beyond just our kin networks, right? This is evolutionary biology. That, that our, we need other people. Yeah. And that's how we got where we are. And if you take that away, you have lost who you are because we define ourselves by where we fit in and how we interact with others around us. And that's what happened is I lost my identity. Yeah. And um, it, it became such an ongoing sense of nothingness, of hopelessness, of because I was, I'd been arrested and I was waiting, I was fighting this case and they just kept me there. I told them I didn't want to be in sick anymore. I, I, needed, I hadn't done anything wrong. They just put me there. Right, they, they put you there, quote, for your own protection, is that right? Quote, unquote, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to be there, and, right. and I kept telling them that it was really creating problems for me. And then finally one day I said to them, you know, I'm having a really struggle here. I talked to family whenever I could get on the phone, and keep in mind they were being charging, the jail was charging me $25 oh, for yeah. a minute phone call. I remember that. <laughs> um, uh, so... This is a, a for-profit segregation industry here. Um, right. uh, and and they kept not letting me out. And we, my family called and my lawyer called. And basically it boiled down to the prosecutor wanted, was in working in conjunction with the jail and wanted me to stay there because they knew it was wearing on me because they were listening to my phone calls and could hear that I was stressed. Yeah. And so I kept asking, kept asking. And finally, at one point, I put a little request for a minute and said, I'm having a hard time here, a really hard time. I put a few in that were carefully worded but this one was like I'm not I'm going to hurt myself but I'm I'm really experiencing a lot of stress I really need to get out of here and rather than even just saying that I was feeling hopeless which was the word that triggered it mm-hmm. rather than get me out of the they actually put me for a few days into a more segregated situation where they took away the three books I had took away all my clothes all my blankets and I've had to sit under watch uh, and not have any so any contact not even the phone <clears throat> no showers nothing because they said that now they thought I might hurt myself. And so they actually, if you respond normally to being socially isolated, they make you more socially isolated in response. Mm-hmm. It's a very 
So, so it's a, the threat is basically sit there and deal with it, no matter how crazy you're going, or it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And there was, I repeatedly asked for mental health counseling opportunities, blah, 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 and family called, and with all the resources that my family has that most families don't, we still can't even get that. Yeah. Um, and so finally, it had been months and months and months, and they kept periodically during this time the prosecutors would come and add more charges. They'd wake me up at like four in the morning at the jail and bring me down to the video conference and tell me that they had charged me with more crimes. And even though I hadn't done anything in the first place, uh, like the vast majority of what I had been charged with was completely fabricated, you know, and uh, they kept adding more and they kept saying, you know, this is going to keep happening unless you plead guilty. And I kept fighting and said, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. I want to fight this. And, and, Finally, after like 10 months, they said, they said to my lawyer, they said, we are going to add hundreds more charges and put it in, put it in the paper and make, you know, make mm-hmm. it sound like he's this arch criminal unless he pleads guilty by this date. They actually told my lawyer that. And at this point it had been, like I said, nine or 10 months and I was, and with the, you know, they kept doing this and I was facing, even though there was no claim of any victim, no claim of I never hurt anybody. I never have. Yet they're telling me that I'm going to face 900 years in prison, and I'm never going to see my son again. And I, after all this time in segregation, I had lost sight of any reality. I had a hug or yeah. a touch from anybody I loved, and and I nothing nothing that I had built set my life building felt real anymore. And I like it, it didn't seem possible that I would ever see anybody I cared about again and they, my lawyer said if you keep fighting right now you're going to stay in seg for potentially up to five years fighting this and I was already going crazy and I didn't want to kill myself per se but I wanted to be dead right. I, it was so miserable this existence that I wished I was dead all day every day because at least then this sense of my life is falling apart I don't ever know if anything's never going to be okay again and I can't even reach out to anybody that I care about to talk about it or deal with it or like this all the only thing I was surrounded with was cold cold steel gray walls and nasty attitudes and I I I just couldn't take it anymore so I finally said okay I'll plead guilty as long as I know that someday this will end right yeah, so I think that's an, the added element of your bathroom example for people is not only are you in the cell by yourself, but you've either been caught for something that you did that was a mistake, or you've, you're being held there for something that you didn't do. And so there's that added element of, of that mental anguish on top of on top of just being in the cell by yourself as well. Um, yeah, I remember when all this was happening and, and it was it was really, really tough um, and so incredibly crazy to witness. <clears throat> you, uh, I went so far as to tell my parents and my loved ones when I did get the chance in letters, because you can send letters, mm-hmm. and the occasional phone call that... I wanted to be dead, and I can only imagine how torturous that was on my parents. Yeah. But I was so desperate to express, to feel something, to reach out, to let somebody know how hard this was, and I, I can never fully make up for having done that to them. But it, I, I think it 
Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. We are all very happy that you are still here. <laughs> um, so let's let's have a little bit of a shift here. Uh, so when I was interviewing David and Kimberly, David talked about the legislation that uh, he worked on this year, and they were trying to get some legislation to reduce the use of solitary confinement in Virginia. They ended up getting their legislation uh, to be some oversight for solitary in the jails, which if most people don't understand, if you've never been uh, privy to the criminal justice system, jails and prisons are two different things. Um, Prisons are state-run institutions, jails are locally run, and their people are usually there for lesser amounts of times in the jails, longer times in the prisons. But um, David said something to the effect of uh, when they were trying to get the bill passed that uh, the state had reported that it was going to cost millions of dollars to reduce the use of segregation in Virginia. However, several years prior, they had basically tried to claim that there was no segregation in Virginia or no solitary confinement in Virginia. And so um, you and I, a while back, uh, talked about all this, and, and you had some thoughts on it. And part of what they've done is that they use different terms for segregation. So can you get a little bit into that and, and what what's kind of going on there? Yes, absolutely. So it was in October, this report was made public, and I read about it in the newspapers and some other people, that supposedly they had been required by a previous law to that was passed in 2017 to track and ideally reduce the use of segregation. And mm-hmm. that was the term specifically that they used in Virginia between 2017 and 2019, July 1st of each. Right. And the report that I, having been here during that whole time, the reporters seemed really crazy because the newspaper was like, oh, it, they went from 1,500 down to only 500 people in segregation. And I was like, that can't be possible because during that time period, or most of it, now now I'm no longer at a big facility, I'm at a small facility, but right. I had been at the biggest prison in Virginia, Greensville, which has 3,500 people, and until halfway through 2018, so halfway through that time period. Mm-hmm. And the whole entire, and I'd been there before it started, the whole entire time I was at Greensville, four and a half years, of those 3,500, there's an entire building of segregation housing, restri- quote-unquote restrictive housing, mm-hmm. which is, quote-unquote, the whole and it's full 100% of the time. You don't you come out when they're putting somebody else in that they need the spot for. That's how that works. It mm-hmm. stays full. Over 300 people just in one prison, and the state has 35 prisons. So this idea, I was like, huh? And so I looked at some policy and figured out what I, I think there's some misunderstanding when, they, when the law demanded that they report about segregation. Mm-hmm. So they had pre-hearing pre-hearing detention, general detention, disciplinary segregation, all three of which exist before you get an actual segregation designation. Mm -hmm. And those can last for months before you actually, or never even get to a segregation designation. Mm -hmm. So I think that even the initial count of 1,500 seemed remarkably low, and this idea that 500 were only left, when from talking to people that just came from Greensville, the hole is still full, you can't have 300 at one prison and only 500 in the state. So I think that this was not knowing what segregation really means. And now, or, or basically that there was a misunderstanding between what they were supposed to be reporting and what was actually happening. Because 
you're still in the same conditions, even if you're not in quote-unquote segregation. Right, so they were now, reporting on that specific word, even though the reality of being in solitary confinement exists in quite a few designations of how they're housing people. Yes. Now, to their credit, as of 2019, July 1st, the day after this report was due, not coincidentally, they did actually change it so now it would be harder to, there's fewer designations for segregation. So in another year or two years, whenever they have to report this again, I think it's once a year now, moving forward, but it might be every two years, uh, there won't be as easy to miscount if you will, mm-hmm. but there still is in their, their claim of 500 only left, even if you were to have it just now, the new definitions that are more limited, they've also, they also have added what they call the step down program and this SAM, S-A-M, which mm-hmm. they never, they, ref, they reference, DOC references in their article mm-hmm. as being another 600 people. And I don't, they, they they never say what it stands for, and it doesn't say it in policy, but I believe it's using my DOC acronym translator. It's probably Security Assistant Management. Um, but it amounts to all of these things, step-down program and all of these things, they're still done in restrictive housing. The step-down program is if you've been convicted of something that you're supposed to go to SEG, you have the alternative of doing the step-down program where you show go through some cognitive Right. Structuring, blah, blah, blah. But what that amounts to is you go to the hole and for the first three weeks you have to write essays sitting in the hole. And you're still in the hole. It doesn't change the fact that you're in SAG, but they don't call it SAG. And SAM, the Security Assistance Management or whatever it stands for, these 600 people, I bet you if you go, they're the same people that had... You have one minute remaining. That had been in SAG before. You're going to have to... just have a new designation. Okay. Uh, let's... Hang up and call me back. Yeah. Okay, sure. I, I love you. Absolutely. I love you. I love. Hello. Hello. An inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Hello, love. Hello, gorgeous. Hello, gorgeous. Okay. Um, you ready to start it again? Uh, yeah, we can. I, I can. There's only a couple more things I want to. I would like yeah, to address yeah, yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Well, say, uh, say the end of, <clears throat> say the end of uh, what you just said sure about. Not. Say the end of what you just said again. Hold on a second, actually. <coughs> Okay, say the end of what you just said again and then go on. <clears throat> Can you do it? Hmm? Say the end of what you just said again and then go on. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Um so I think that it amounts to different names for the same thing, This even the new structuring. I think that if you looked at, even with the newer and truly better way of classifying not as many designations for the same thing, they still have this SAM and the step down. If you add it all up, it's gonna amount to the same number of people constantly in 
restrictive, some sort of restrictive housing setting. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not called the same thing, even if there is a some degree of program involved now, or an opportunity to, you know, to to maybe try to do something towards thinking how you're behaving with a little bit of structure, it's still living in this socially isolated environment when whatever got you there in the first place was some sort of crisis in your life. And it's not good to be socially isolated ever, let alone in the moment of crisis. Um, So, uh, and and I I think the evidence, the easiest way to to point to this is that that, that there must have been some sort of misunderstanding in the count because they claimed that a thousand people less were in SEG in the course of two years. Yet during those two years, DOC's population did not go down and SEG had been full everywhere before that. So unless you just reclassify people in different terms, where the hell did they go? Right. Um, so I, I think that's important. But I, I think the thing about this report that um, was even more, seemed to be more of a misunderstanding on the, on those, on the part of those reporting it um, was the way that it described, because not only was, they were, was it taking credit for this reduction in use of segregation, quote unquote, um, the DOC's quote on the subject was that they are, start quote, not subject to social or sensory deprivation end quote, and that, start quote, they still have the same ability to look out windows, to speak to people, and so forth, end quote. And that's just not the case. That's a completely different than the reality on the ground. And they also mm-hmm. said that there was three to four hours every day that somebody was out of their cell to socialize. They basically implied that it's not any different from being in a regular prison setting, and that's entirely, entirely different on the ground for us, for people who your supposedly new new policy has recently added that you're required to have two hours out of your cell a day, but the reality is that you're lucky to get half an hour because it's always unless security needs otherwise, and that uh-huh. usually happens. Right. And it's, there is nowhere in the seg areas to actually have social contact. The only social contact you can have is if you stand on your bunk and yell through vents or through the get down on the floor and yell through under the doors to the other people that are in SEG. And, um, and, I mean, that's like trying to have a conversation at the top of your lungs in a warehouse that is divided into airplane bathrooms. Like, right. It's not exactly great, great dialogue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and you don't, if you ever get, they say that there's all sorts of treatment opportunities, but the reality is once a day somebody comes by and does a vital science check. Other than that, the, the only, even by policy, they're only required to, upon your intake, do an acute evaluation for anything in the moment, and then once a month check in on you for mental health. Anything else, all they give you is forms, and they tell you, sorry, security says you can't do that right now. You get kicked mm-hmm. out of all of the education you're in, you get kicked out of, you can't go to religious programs, you can't go to visits. The reality is everything is taken away from you, and you're stuck in this space, and you, you know, all of your personal property, all of, like, none of that is, is there for you, the few little things you normally get. Yeah. And uh, the implication that you're, that it's somehow not deprivation is, is factually not what, what it's like. Right. And I think that's important. 
I think it's also important, and <clears throat> excuse me, we we talk about this. <clears throat> I'm gonna cut that out. <clears throat> so I think it's also important, and you know, we talk about this when we talk about other things, is that you know, as a society, we should be wanting people who have done things that we deem as bad or wrong. We should be wanting those people to become better people, and. All of this seems completely counterproductive to that goal. You know, doing what you have described to someone seems like they're going to come out the other end definitely not as a better person. You know, they may come out um, mad or, or upset in that way, but they also may just come out broken. And so I think it's yeah. just a completely counterproductive thing to do. And also completely inhumane. Ultimately, people go to prison and then from within prison, in theory at least, when it's appropriate, go to some sort of restricted situation because they're having trouble interacting with other people. How are you ever going to make people better interacting with others if you disallow them from interacting with right. others? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, it, 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 and if you treat people like animals, over time they tend to I mean, if you treat people well, they act well. If you treat people with respect, they give respect. If you treat right. people like animals, they tend to act like animals. Yeah. And to that point, the, the quote-unquote rec time that you do get in SEG when you get it, on the off chance it's not four hours like he claims, which is what the bill that David Smith was going for, promoting, wanted, and we should, have, we should, we should really have. Um, the half an hour to an hour that you do occasionally get, it's actually done in a series of dog cages. They put you outside in like eight by 20 foot dog runs. Yeah, it looks like a kennel, yeah? They actually treat you like an animal. Right. Um, And and, and that is going to not lead to people behaving better. It's just, it's not going to help. Exactly. Yeah. Is there um, anything else you want to add before we go? So it dawned on me in thinking about this that a good way, since people seem to be at a misunderstanding of what the reality is, even the people that work for DOC, I think, don't necessarily understand the reality. Mm -hmm. I think that there should be some sort of situation where, just like for police, you're not allowed to use, and this is not all police forces, but many are not allowed to use a taser until you've been tased. Right, yeah. You're not allowed to... I think it would be a good policy to you cannot put anybody in segregation yeah. for any longer than you have been willing to spend yourself in segregation. If you only are authorized to do it for one day, if you've only spent one day yourself in that situation. Yeah. And not just in the space, but treated accordingly. Right, right. I think, them. yeah, that would be a great idea. Um, and then people would be, I think, a lot less apt to use it because they would understand what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, experiential learning would be really, really good and, and I think would create empathy and understanding. That's a great idea. All right, anything else? No, I think that's, I think I've rattled on just about <laughs> enough at this point. <laughs> well, you do like to do that, and I love you for it. So, and that's the last thing, uh, <laughs> is that I love you. And thank you for sharing all this. I think it's it's going to be really great for people to, to understand uh, these things. So, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, just for future reference, 
as an interviewer, you were supposed to say, no, 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 you haven't rattled on. In fact, we would love to have you speak for much longer. And just tell on your interview. I said I love you for it, so... I know, yeah, and so I really appreciate you talking about it. I love you. I love you. Okay, thanks for listening all the way through to the end. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of The Blue. We're going to dive deep into lots of subjects, so I hope you'll join me again for our next episode. Episodes should be up every other week, so stay tuned and see what we're going to dive into next time. Again, I'm your host, Jen Carter, and thank you so much for listening.